Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mafrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Alyssa Rubin, an international correspondent for the New York Times, who has spent over 20 years reporting in the Middle East, Afghanistan, France, and the Balkans. Having previously also worked for the Los Angeles Times, she was awarded the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on Afghan women, the Michael Kelly Award for reporting in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the 2015 John Chancellor Award. She has a BA in Renaissance Studies from Brown University and a Master's in European History from Columbia University. She's currently finishing up a year at Harvard University as a Naaman Fellow and most recently delivered the Bernard D. Nossiter Lecture at Dartmouth titled Fact-Based Journalism in an Age of Suspicion. Alessa, we're very grateful to have you with us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. So just in general, I guess let's start from a broad look on things. Uh, journalism, is it safe to say, I think, has changed in the U.S. a lot over the past years and um, the way it's both conducted and delivered to readers. And, you know, that has also kind of changed the way um, everyday people disseminate information. Um, and as someone who has, you know, had this really incredible opportunity of doing journalism and, and reporting and, and collecting this information from all over the world, can you tell us even how these same changes to journalism are a world, worldwide phenomenon um, and, and how they affected the type of work that you do every day? Wow. Well, that's a big question. Um, well, obviously, everyone now, um, even in parts of the world that are poorly served by the Internet, are, are getting news on their phone. Uh, lots of parts of the world that that don't even have landlines do have cell phones and through cell phones have a- some access to the internet, even if they don't have, have actual computer hookups. And so we're, we've just had an explosion in both the demand for information and the diffusion of information of all kinds um, and very with very few filters. And that's a matter of enormous debate. How many, uh, who and what kinds of filters could, should, can be put on the internet? Um, obviously, there are countries like China, to some extent India, which have, um, and, and any number of other countries that have sharply, sharply limited what kind of news can be read and viewed by most people. But there are ways around that, and and that's um, and that means that there's just an, an enormous flow of information, and with that flow of information comes the challenge of of if you are a journalist of distinguishing your report from that of others, and of actually having any sense of what people. Uh, might believe or understand about what was going on in the world, because there's a lot of information that is either incomplete or wrong or purposely deceptive. And so that's that's an overall change in the landscape that we've really seen explode in the last, I would say, even 10 to 15 years, um, certainly since I've been overseas. Um, As a journalist, it means that uh, you know, you're always trying to write through the noise or to broadcast through the noise. You're always trying to find a way to say things and present things that people actually pay attention to. Or even if they don't see yours, that other news organizations pick up and therefore amplify. You know, I, I'm the highest compliment is is um, is someone who picks up your news, your your way of telling a story. And even if 
they don't give you credit. I, I know this is not the way many people feel, but I feel it's most important for the stories I tell and the stories the New York Times tells to get out there. And of course, there should be there should be credit given where the work has been done. But if good, solid information gets out there, I'm I'm very happy about that. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, one reason why I've always been interested in journalism and how it's been an important medium for me to gather information and why I'm really grateful for it is because, you know, even even I guess while you're kind of writing to this noise, it's it's still served as an outlet for, you know, everyday people to kind of read about and understand the experience of individuals behind conflicts, you know, conflicts that are otherwise painted in the mainstream by these like very black and white political divisions, right? Um, and and obviously like it's not easy to to kind of collect these experiences and kind of um, kind of kind of move move towards these to, to address these very specific issues and, and kind of collect this very specific information. And as a reporter um, who's been all around the world, you know, what have been some kinds of differences and similarities um, that you've seen in having to collect, understand and write about these stories, you know, through that noise? Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is to think is to remember that um, you know, news and um, explanatory journalism um, it functions at many levels. And, and really, you do have to understand what is going on at a fairly strategic level, at a political level. I mean, politics does drive a lot of what happens in the world. But it it is also true that at the at the the end end um, I don't know quite how to say it, the end users, the, the people who ultimately live what the politicians decide are people who are an awful lot like you and me. And, and you know, they're, they're um, some of them are educated and middle class and some of them are poor and some of them are farmers and some of them are teachers. And, um, and I think in order to, to paint a picture that, that people can find credible and useful, you have to kind of grasp the whole thing and not just uh, not just tell a narrow piece of it. I mean, for instance, um, a, a pretty good example is the recent uh, the recent Israeli bombing in Gaza, where I, there's a very complicated political back and forth between Hamas and and Prime Minister Netanyahu, whose political fortunes are very unstable. Hamas also is up against considerable political instability. They both have reasons to want conflict to distract from their own domestic problems. But the end sufferers are mostly, but not entirely, Palestinians, some of whom are not Hamas, most of whom are not Hamas. They are children. They are you know, ordinary people living ordinary lives and suffering. And so in order to tell that story, and we, I hope for people to hear it, they need to understand the way how this, this enormous gap in which, in which ordinary people suffer and people on top are in a sense almost playing, I don't want to say playing a game, but are in a, in a political battle that has very little to do with what's happening on the ground. And that is a compelling, tragic um, story that's important for people to understand. Definitely. How, how have you kind of used your own, I guess, whether it's a writing tool or writing resource or writing techniques, like how have you kind of harnessed those to kind of produce and kind of weave such a story together, such a story like, like the Israeli-Palestinian mm-hmm. conflict that has such a history and yet the 
the plight of so many individual people has been really the spotlight and it has been has been like gathering a lot of importance especially in the past few weeks and that's been really you know the how do we how do we involve or i guess bring all the yeah. political crises together to kind of focus in on the humanitarian right. aspect which kind of well, trumps all yeah i mean i think i think we you know um people always like people stories but people stories occur in a context and and i'm very committed as someone who studied history and um um you know thinks about that a lot to to, to providing the frame so that someone says, okay, here's our big picture, and now we're going to zero in here, but they still know that we're in this frame. So, you know, when I sit down to write a story, whether it's about in Iraq or Afghanistan or Paris, I make a list, and I have a list of, you know, public public figures, maybe it's a politician, maybe it's a minister, maybe it's the head of a hospital or a mayor. And then I have a list of of ordinary people or types of people I want to go find. And then I have someone who's thoughtful and who thinks about things maybe kind of the way I do, do, but maybe in a more educated way, knows the area more and can shed light, sort of a wise, a wise person. They might be an, an anthropologist. They might be a community leader. They could be, but somebody who will have insights and some sense of, of context and the historical context in which the event is occurring. And I talk to all those people and then I tell the story in the way that is most compelling. And maybe it's most compelling through the person who is the, the shopkeeper, but maybe it's most compelling through the community leader. And I try to find the voice to start it with and then provide the background so people know where it's happening and then put in the other pieces, like a big jigsaw puzzle um, that give a sense of the tapestry. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I don't know if that helps. No, definitely. Um, I think often, like, especially now, we kind of conflate a compelling story with a one-sided story or where where can we draw the line on that and like you mentioned there are a lot of perspectives you know that come into play when you write something which is which is great and I think it's something that you know brings a lot of makes journalism like what particularly informative but you know where where when as a consumer where do we draw that line well I think you know when you First of all, it depends what the story's about. I mean, there are times when you're going to focus on one individual and you're going to, you know, that'll be the that'll be the storyline and the thrust. But even so, you can have voices that question decisions the individual made. And maybe you 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 take those questions and you ask the person those questions yourself. Maybe you quote that person. Um, but there's always several points of view and sometimes people within themselves hold several points of view i i recently worked on a piece on um a flaring of excess gas from oil wells and that um there are these villages have been completely destroyed by that uh in southern iraq i mean they're not destroyed but they're horrible places to live there's high rates of illness of various kinds probably, if not caused by the pollution, certainly augmented by it. But people have, they are very angry about that. But what do they want? They want jobs at the oil um, refinery. 
So they want to work in the very industry that is hurting them. They do not want an environmentally maybe better solution. So part of the back and forth comes from looking at the tensions within within people themselves and drawing them out so that you can show how complicated it is to change things. It's not just a matter of shutting down the the gas burning. They it's people don't really want it to shut down if they could get jobs doing it, if they could be the in some way benefit. So I, I think there are many ways to suggest that complexity, but you always want to hear have enough different voices or enough questions asked that you don't put down an article and say, well, but what about this, you know? And if you put down the article and say like, well, but they never asked this question, that's not good. Then you know that they, they missed something. Definitely, definitely. Or you don't know it, but it's likely. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of like complex issues, I want to kind of turn to your reporting. Yeah, like you said, in the Middle East and Afghanistan, where, you know, I think a lot of people in the United States and in, in the West kind of hear about the war in Afghanistan and like political implications, but don't really hear about the effect, the wide range of effects on the people of Afghanistan. And like you reported on in particular, the women of, of Afghanistan. And I, I want if you could answer maybe on a little bit on how, um, you know, you've seen the effects of reporting on these women, how that's a change maybe affected their lives um, or changed, you know, changed the conversation on on the implications of this very, you know, long, long and hard war. And, you know, with with now that changing this year and um, the, the U.S. is present in Afghanistan changing and also, you know, investigative journalism changing, you know, where you see kind of the 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 information being reported or, or the 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 the, the I don't want to say activism, but um, the the understanding of these people's experiences. You know, where 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 do we see that fitting in to to our understanding of of the region? Um, well, I I think you know a question you should always ask when you look at a photograph is who's not in this picture, and if you look at most pictures of Afghanistan, you will see men. Um, and you will see men because women avoid photos. They don't feel it's proper to be seen in them. They certainly don't think it's proper to have their full face seen usually. Um, and I mean, a few do, more modern people and in, in Kabul, but but not entirely. So then you ask yourselves, what, what do people need to know or think about as they... Um, uh, as, as they look at, at, at this, this war. And they need to know both about what's seen and unseen. And so I went into Afghanistan thinking a lot about what we didn't see. Um, and, and that was in part, in great part, women. And so as we look at what's happening now, I, I do think, you know, you have to take apart all the different um you know, all the different groups that will be affected in different ways. And it's not just women, it is also minorities. There is a very large Hazara Shia Muslim minority, a very large, it's a, it's a significant one in Afghanistan. And they 
they have always been disliked by the Taliban and targeted by them. So like women, they are unlikely to be treated well. So as we think about the price of withdrawal and the price for the U.S. is very low, President Biden and people who back it will not suffer for taking troops out of Afghanistan, politically or otherwise. They'll save a little money and people will kind of forget about it. I mean, they'll be upset that bad things happen, but it's not their problem. But as journalists, we need to remind people about the cost and the extent to which we have a responsibility because we stayed there so long. So we kind of made a promise or what looked like a promise to the people who were there. So what does it feel like to them and how do they see us as breaking that promise? But I also think that we have to think about what this means to the Taliban. And the Taliban also felt that they were treated wrongly. They too were Afghans. They were forced to flee. They had to leave the country because they were afraid of being killed. Now they're afraid of being killed for some good reasons and some not so good reasons. Not every Taliban, after all, was involved in the decision to shelter Osama bin Laden. And it was because the Taliban government made that decision that that the United States attacked after after the uh, World Trade Center was destroyed and so many Americans were killed. But nonetheless, that was the result for the you know, hun- hundreds of thousands of Taliban who fled or who went underground or who felt their lives or lost their jobs. And so... I think we have to think, too, about what they want and where they fit in this picture. And so as a journalist, to me, you have to sit there, sit down and make a list and try to understand each of those groups as best you can and offer insights into how they're seeing the situation, as well as asking whether the U.S. is in some way betraying people to whom it made a promise of protection such as Afghan women. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It just goes to show like the importance of, you know, continuing to take a look at and examine these stories, you know, moving forward. And um, as a journalist, um, how can, how can conducting journalism with integrity, um, you know, still continue to serve as a vehicle for empathy or curiosity? Oh, I don't think it, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're, um, integrity just means you're honest about what you're seeing and, and um, empathy is just very exhausting, but it's always worth it. You know, you just have to really be present for people, people, almost everyone in the world I've ever written about has had a worse time than I have in life in some important regard. Um, I mean, not presidents and diplomats, but many, many, many people. And especially in in less um, less wealthy countries, and so I'm deeply grateful they even speak to me, let alone <coughs> take the time to really share their lives with me. But I think it's just terribly important to do that because otherwise you don't understand it. And the same is true, by the way, of politicians in some of these places. Being a politician. Being a woman politician in Afghanistan, that is really difficult. <laughs> um, turning to a little bit of a different question, um, as I mentioned a little bit at the beginning, um, you yourself came from an academic background that's more in the humanities, not necessarily a journalism degree. 
how has it shaped your view on your profession? And what would you say to a college student, like a Dartmouth college student, for example, who does not have access to a journalism program or a journalism major, you know, and still would be interested in, in pursuing this field? I would say don't worry at all about not having a journalism background. If you are curious and you like to write and you know how to read, got you, you then you need to find a place to work for. And that can be tricky, but you start often in a job that doesn't sound quite right, but you just keep moving till you find one where you're learning enough. But um, I didn't start at the New York Times. I had no expectation I would ever get there. I feel unbelievably fortunate that I did because it's a place which has resources and unbelievable talent. But... Um, you know, I I really I worked for a whole bunch of different places, and I I was always curious, and I always like to read, and I always think that those the ability to read and write well is what the humanities teaches you, and to think critically, and that that's as as useful as anything else. But I just want to say, one of my dearest colleagues has a PhD in physics. And what does he do? He does investigative stories about things that fall apart. He is the most amazing journalist. You know, very few people actually are interested in why things fall apart. But think about all the things that fall apart. Buildings fall apart. That bridge in Italy that collapsed with all those cars on it. The Notre Dame Cathedral with the fire that where the whole thing caved in. Understanding how things get put together and fall apart turns out to be hugely important. And that's what physicists do. So I don't think there's one field. I think it's wanting to explain it well and clearly and with, with feeling, um, but also with, with great, great clarity. And that's about writing. And, and really you learn writing a lot by doing it and some by studying it. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think you mentioned a little bit in there about, you know, critical thinking is, is really, really important. And, you know, something that I've witnessed myself during my years in school from elementary down to, mm -hmm. up to college at this point, you know, is is a great increased dedication, you know, in social studies classes and college courses towards that critical reading, critical thinking, you know, the importance of reading and selecting reliable sources and discerning you know, where, where, where quotes and citations come from, you know, how do you hope practices like that change the way, you know, readers interact with your work? Well, I would always hope that to have critical readers. I love having questions by people who've actually read my articles and people even who find things they think don't make sense. They'll say, but you went from this point to that point. And I'll say, you know, you're right. I should have had this sentence in between. And I don't mind that at all. They make me better. And I mean, does one like to be criticized? No, of course not. But of course, it's the only way you may get better. Um, and I, I just think that's, that's the virtue of good editing is that they find where the holes are and they try to make you fill them. Um, and I, I'm always aware that, you know, if more people, I think, were spent a little more time thinking about what they read and comparing it to their own lives, then maybe some of our problems with, with um, sort of deceptive news and mythic sort of these, these um, myths that last that become sort of conventional wisdom might change a little. Because often if you just ask people to think a little bit about 
you know, well, are you satisfied with this? Do you really believe, you know, people who, who, for instance, say, well, you know, the, um, it's good to cut taxes because the money will trickle down. Well, that was the case in X, Y, Z years. How, how did that affect you? Did the money reach you? And some people will say, well, no, it didn't reach me, but I think it would have, you know, in a little while, or I think it will soon. Or, you know, sometimes people just can't get away from an idea, but other times, if you think about, think a little critically about your own situation, you realize you can, you can do your own analysis. You don't need journalists. And I wish we had a, had people a little more willing to do that. And maybe, maybe journalism can help people feel empowered to do that. It's a great point um, and a great note to end on. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, Me too. Thank you so much. To our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.